Hello and welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode recorded on Saturday, February 27th, 2021. Good evening to everyone out there. I am Greg, your host for this evening's podcast. This evening, we're conducting an informal wrap session with Michael White, the Wisconsin State Chair for the Alliance Party, also a recently retired medical professional. Hello, everybody, and thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here. And Dan Schaefer, the Alliance Party State Chair for Missouri, who is also the producer here at Alliance Party After Dark. It's always great to be here. Thanks, Greg. And of course, I am Greg from Philly. Now, Michael, you're a recently retired doctor. It wasn't uh, content to just ride your horse into the sunset. You, As a state chair, you're obviously extremely engaged. Uh, and you've been asked on more than one occasion as a doctor and a state chair for Wisconsin to lend your expert advice on the air with several PBS stations. So you're on the front lines in medicine and politics. And with that in mind, uh, we'd like to take a look at the crossroads of politics and science and disease and how that is all playing out in the era of COVID now that we're at least a year into this at this point um, and potentially some bright spots on the horizon. We've got a vaccine now. Uh, in particular, a vaccine using a relatively new process of getting mRNA to jumpstart the immune system as opposed to a more classic approach of exposing people to a uh, crippled inert form of the virus to train the immune system. This is a, a pretty cool new approach, very amazing stuff. Uh, and the fact that it can be developed, tested, and rolled out within a year is nothing short of a tremendous accomplishment for, for everyone involved, for all of humanity, as this is a truly global pandemic. It's a new approach to fighting disease, and yet now there is more logistical problems now that we've had the scientific breakthrough side of it. How do we manufacture enough? How do we distribute it to people that need it? The logistics of everything, it's, it's kind of the dreaded word of the vaccine plans. And it seems like we just can't produce and distribute enough of the vaccine fast enough to the public to meet the demand. So I guess what we're, what we're really asking for you is what are the holdups here and what is the usual pipeline for manu manufacturing of vaccine? And are there any special challenges here that are altering that timeline? Okay, those are all excellent questions and I'm gonna sidestep them a little bit not, not, I'm really not going to dodge the question, but I'm going to clarify a couple of things. The, the first thing I would say is that uh, just in total transparencies, although I have talked on PBS, Public Broadcasting System, I'm actually routinely on the Pacifica Radio Network. Now, the Pacifica Radio Network is, is identical to, similar to uh, what we think of as PBS stations. They are non-commercial stations. But unlike PBS, they don't get any government grants. They are a consortium of small independent radio stations. There are two flagship stations, one in New York City and one in uh, Berkeley, California, that are quite large stations. Um, but all the rest of them are small community radio stations. Some of them have a broadcast range of about three miles. Uh, some of them are what, what's called low power FM. And they are all local community stations, um, which uh, are very important to the communities they serve. Um, and, and the way I lucked into doing this was there was a local community radio station that was being stood up in Viroqua, Wisconsin, uh, by some friends of mine who are Linux geeks, kind of like Dan and Greg. Hmm. And they gave a presentation of how they were starting up a whole new radio station with open source software, uh, the people's software, if you will. Um, and I said, gee, that's different than when I was a DJ in college. Next thing you know, I was a DJ. It, it took them almost two years to convince me because at the time I was, our, I was working for a Mayo facility and I was our only dermatologist. And I had, not only had I no free time, I had negative numbers of free time, um, but after about two years, they convinced me to do it. And I've been doing it for about eight years. As a result, I know a number of people in the National Pacifica Radio Network, and that has led to being interviewed repeatedly uh, for the Pacifica Radio Network on COVID issues. Um, there's been a little political discussion there, although I, I confess I try to keep 
my various hats in their respective lanes. So for example, I don't do politicking at work. Um, I can share my day job when I'm doing politicking, but I can't use my title if you follow me um, because I, I need to yeah. respect what the limits are. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I retired at the end of last year and the end of December. Uh, however, as it turns out, I have friends in special places in China. I have colleagues who are directors, commanders, I'm not sure what the official title is, uh, of specialty hospitals in China that were being affected by COVID extremely early. And I wrote to them and, and expressed my sympathy um, and my understanding and my gratitude because I knew what they were dealing with and how it was really intended to protect all of us. And my letter of, of support went viral in China. Um, it was translated and was in a couple of tiny Chinese journals and a number of newspapers. And, and mine was only one of many. But because of that, I've been following this since early January of last year, probably a month before most people. I reached out to the local public health director in late February or early March, just about a year ago right now, and said, look, this is, this is coming and uh, I'm cutting my hours at work. I have some background in, in these sorts of things. And if I can be of any help, let me know. She said, yeah, got it. Thank you. And finally in July, she called me and said, were you serious? I said, absolutely. She said, okay, I need you right now. And I wound up being involved in our local testing effort, uh, trying to get people tested and logistics and making people aware of it and trying to get people so they were not afraid of testing. And then I retired at the end of the year and they said, okay, we now need you to work on the vaccine deployment effort. And oh, by the way, we're going to hire you because we're going to give you a county laptop and uh, official title and some authority. And in order to do that, you're now a county employee. So I'm very careful to live within the uh, county rules. Uh, my children harassed me because dad, you weren't even retired more than a month and now you're working again and you're not supposed to be working full time, but it is almost approaching full time already. So what I'm doing is I am the uh, current clinic manager for our vaccination clinic efforts, uh, which means we are in the process of dramatically upscaling our vaccination efforts, which started with two large hospital systems. We have a Mayo system and a competing hospital system, Gunderson Health, um, and they have borne the lion's share of the burden of getting people vaccinated. And that was a function of how the vaccines were distributed within the state of Wisconsin. Uh, Mayo's situation is a little funny because of course they're headquartered in Minnesota, in Rochester, Minnesota, but the two vaccine supply chains are completely unrelated. One is within Wisconsin and one is in Minnesota and near the twain shall meet. They don't, one does not supply the other at all. However, the prioritization of within the Mayo system, how it would be done uh, was pretty much consistent with the way Mayo had set priorities previously. So one of the issues of course is what's it like in various states? What's the rollout been like? Uh, I will tell you that in Wisconsin, the rollout initially was limited and uh, we have had challenges uh, all the time with um, how much vaccine are we going to get this week? Literally, we found out uh, yesterday at probably about four o'clock what the vaccine number is for, <clears throat> excuse me, what the vaccine number is for the coming week. I happen to know what it is for Friday because there's a special clinic that I'm running. But after that, I don't know. And, and I don't know when will we win well. We probably won't know for several more days. Um, so that that's kind of an overview of where things are at. And I know I rambled a little bit, um, but I hope that gets us started. Well, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because, you know, as a lay person, if you don't know how many of a thing you're going to get, it makes it a little hard to plan around how you're going to distribute that and, and schedule everyone and What's your capacity? Are you going to have too much or too little? How do you address that? I mean, the, the federal government's done a pretty good job of funding and 
coordinating vaccine development, uh, there arguably hasn't been as well on the execution of delivering it. Seems like uh, they sort of gave it to the states, left them to their own devices, and there were some challenges there. Um, and certainly a lack of communication seems to be one of them. Is that fair to say? I would say that's absolutely fair to say. Um, I think that has dramatically improved over time and in complete political neutrality on this issue, it began to improve in the fall of last year before the election and um, after, of course, after the election and the change of, change of command to the Biden administration. Uh, it was not ideal and it's still uh, not ideal in some, some ways. Um, there is in fact a, a plan for this um, it is called the Health and Human Services Pandemic Influenza Plan, which was uh, actually was printed in November 2005, and it was commissioned by George W. Bush. Um, the latest one was 2005. Uh, it was uh, commissioned before that. Um, and it was in response to his having read um, a book about the, the great flu of 1918. Um, and he said, oh, my God, if that came to the United States, that would be terrible. We need a plan. They brought it together and they, they put a plan together. And I actually have, I just grabbed it. I actually have a copy of the plan. I printed it off from the PDF because anybody can go to the HHS uh, website and, and download it. Um, and one of the things that is emphasized throughout that is the importance of communication. And that has been problematic at the federal level since day one. It is arguably improved a lot. We can get into the politics of that at some point, uh, but in fairness to everybody involved, having a plan is not the same as understanding the plan and it's never the same as dealing with the reality. There's an old, and I'm an old military guy, so I get to have old military quotes but there's an old military quote, no plan of battle ever survives contact with the enemy. Um, and the pl every plan makes certain kinds of assumptions. Um, and when they start to fall apart, people wind up uh, improvising. But coming back to the question at hand, the plan was not communicated well. Uh, the distribution system was not communicated well. I'm not privy to everything that the state government knew I'm only privy to what we know at the local and county level, and of course, what's in the newspaper. Um, but in my new role, here I am, the clinic manager. I walk around and I ask people what they know, what they know about the vaccine, what they know about what's coming, what they know about what the priorities are, what they know about when they're going to get it. And the usual response is, I don't. I don't know because nobody's telling me. Um, and that, I think, has been the state of affairs for a very long time. Now I'm going to toot the horn of Wisconsin and say that the state health department has done an admirable job since way back last summer when all we were talking about was case numbers, not the vaccine. There's a state webpage which uh, physicians, uh, other providers are encouraged to go to. There's a webinar that goes on. There's actually a couple, but there's one in particular for providers every week. Uh, you can actually go to the website and look at how many doses there are and where they're available. Um, and they've done an admirable job of communicating with the professionals in the health departments uh, throughout the state. And there's a, an institution um, in a couple of institutions in Wisconsin that are the reason for the success in Wisconsin. One is the HERC, the Healthcare Emergency Response Coalition. And the state is broken up into distinct regions, each of which is a unique HERC. And we're in HERC 4, which includes La Crosse County, where I live, and about seven surrounding counties. So all of the ambulance services, all of the hospitals, all of the county health departments, and various other institutions all have representatives on the HERC. And when they were starting to face for example, um, rising numbers of cases and the, the danger of ICUs being overwhelmed, the HERC was a mechanism for coordination among the hospitals. The other institution is Weaver, 
Wisconsin Emergency Assistance Volunteer Registry. And anybody that wants to volunteer to help out registers in the statewide computer system. They affiliate with a given county or a given area. And then the people from that county are accessing the Weaver database on a daily basis. And I can do a download today on all the volunteers in Weaver for La Crosse County. And I know who's got what skill set, what their hours are, how to contact them. Um, so the coordination of the people working the vaccine distribution actually has been extraordinary. Now, the coordination of what we're getting and when we're getting it in defense of the governments, that's partly a function of weather. Remember, there was a whole bunch of vaccine that got trapped in Tennessee by the recent weather, we, yep. crazy weather we had, and also the logistics of production. Um, people have been scaling up their production extraordinarily rapidly. And, and if we get a chance, I'd like to talk about that and all the limitations that go with that. But the reality is that there's competing political profession and they've got to decide on the fly, okay, we've got this many doses that are produced this week. New York gets this many and California gets another number and Wisconsin gets a few and South Dakota, well, we're sorry, but we forgot you this week, you know, et cetera. And so uh, people are having to make decisions on the fly and pass it down. And you're right, it's hard to deal with. And I know that was a long-winded answer, but I hope it contributed. And while we're talking about inclement weather, I got to give a shout out to any of our listeners that are down in Texas. Oh, yeah. Uh, talking yeah. about challenging times. I have a, a real quick one for you, Mike. Uh, being a military guy, um, don't wouldn't states or the federal government run like what would be considered like war games in a situation like this to be more prepared? Because it seems like we're kind of making it up as we go along. Wisconsin, as as you say, is doing a great job of distribution and logistics. Uh, Missouri, where I live, it's a bit of a horror story. We have people uh, living in St. Louis, which is near where I live. Uh, also, people living in Kansas City in the urban and suburban areas, which are not getting enough vaccine. But guess what? They're driving three to four hours into uh, another county, perhaps even on the other side of the state in many cases, where the distribution of vaccine, uh, in the extreme case, there's one city in Missouri with 64 residents, they got a thousand um, doses of the vaccine. And so, you know, they were desperate to get, you know, shots in arms because they didn't have enough people, obviously, to vaccinate. So I guess what I'm saying is that uh, wouldn't, wouldn't a war game situation like this um, help and do states do things like this at all? Does Wisconsin do this? I'm pretty sure Missouri doesn't, but does Wisconsin, you know, play these things out? In, in answer to the last couple of questions, the answer is yes, Wisconsin does it. And in fact, um, plans are in place based on those kinds of exercises. Um, and in, in defense of the public health people in Missouri and in Iowa, there may be more plans even than I realize but when politics gets involved, they often, pardon the choice of words, they often trump the plans um, and mm -hmm. the plans don't necessarily get followed. Now, sometimes that's appropriate, sometimes it's not. Uh, sometimes reality doesn't match what the plan says was supposed to happen. But I don't think all of the um, states have an equal degree of uh, planning. I don't think it has anything to do with Democrat versus Republican versus Green Party versus Alliance Party versus anything else. I think it has more to do with local priorities and local funding. Um, and, I, you know, those kinds of things is one of the downside of our system where a lot of authority and a lot of responsibilities are delegated to the states and the states that live up to it do well and the states that maybe are not as well off um, as economically, or have a different full of philosophic approach to things, they don't do as well. Um, and then, then there's the issue, okay, you can have the greatest plan in the world, mm -hmm. but if the people are not willing to follow it, mm -hmm. right. you know, you get nowhere. That's sort of the challenge we've had with, with masks. Like they've, they've been demonstrated to be extremely effective, but getting people to adopt them has been very challenging over the course of the year. Yeah, it became and one political. Of the issues, yeah. One of the 
Yeah, exactly. And one of the issues there is, yes, from everything that I've read, they have been deemed to be quite effective. And I can cite some perfect examples. <clears throat> one, for example, being the low total number of cases in Taiwan and in New Zealand, where in fact, social distancing and masking up was you know, universally adopted and very effective. Um, and in other places, um, it is uh, not going so well because it's a matter of freedom and people want to resist the government and plans are not followed. There's actually a recent journal article, uh, which I believe was in the New England Journal of Medicine, but it might have been in Lancet, and I have it on my hard drive, I can look it up if I need to, which said, hey, let's look at the risk-benefit ratio of our lockdown and social distancing and everything we've done, because it doesn't look like it's very favorable. And there are people who seize on that to see it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. No, it works if you follow the plan. It doesn't work worth beans if you don't follow it well. A half-assed effort gives you less than a half-assed result. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, I mean, again, layperson, not a medical professional, not a political leader. Uh, but I, you know, I, I do lead organizations and it is frustrating beyond words to see measures like a lockdown, which, you know, they do have an economic cost to them, but theoretically should work very well, but to then have those be undermined by just folks not going along with it, you kind of get the worst of both worlds where you're taking the economic hit, but instead of being on lockdown for a month while the disease runs its course, you're on lockdown for a year because it's never really going to run its course. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And, and so it's an honest question to say, okay, if people aren't going to follow it, maybe we ought to abandon the lockdown approach let the businesses survive as best they can, open things up and do focused lockdown, focused masking, focused testing. I mean, I can point to all kinds of things that we should have done better. One of which is made testing widely available and free and test, 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 test until people are tired of being tested, but we're able to focus our efforts where the problem really is. That was something kind of surprised me, too, in the beginning, that that was not done, because <clears throat> I think that if you can test and isolate, it, it, as long as the numbers are small enough, you can you can do the, the contact tracing, the testing, and the isolation. Uh, I th would think that'd be pretty effective, but that seemed like the government was sort of slow to do that. And I think a lot of people threw their hope into a vaccine, which eventually came true, but it's been a long, hard road. But there, I, I think for the U.S. anyway, it, it, it just got too widespread for that approach to really. Yeah, yeah. I, I think mean, you can you're know talking it. about mass oh, testing no, us, I, I, you know, I, that, that we're not used I, to in this country. Yeah, well, there, there is that whether or not it would be accepted. But Greg, I, I want to disagree with you slightly. <clears throat> it isn't that it got out of control. Uh, we were handicapped because the first approach to testing done by the FDA was actually not very well done. Hmm. And I mean, the, no, the tell us more about that. Chinese, well, the Chinese had a test before the end of January of last year for disease that didn't exist before December of 2019. Hmm. So they developed a very rapid uh, test that they were able to de deploy within weeks in quantity. Now, Admittedly, I think there were some problems even with the Chinese test, so that it was uh, somewhat overly sensitive um, and it would miss certain kinds of infections. But, but they were able to start testing large numbers very, very quickly. The FDA has a very rigorous uh, set of procedures for developing and validating tests. Rigor is not something you do quickly. And the FDA was not willing to accept a sloppy, and I'm using loaded words deliberately, mm -hmm. um, but the FDA was not willing to accept a quick, sloppy 60% solution to testing. <clears throat> they wanted one that worked flawlessly. And okay, that takes three months. 
and we didn't have that much time to wait. Mm -hmm. uh, now, um, there, there's a test uh, which was put out by uh, a particular company, and I'm just going to, I am going to mention a brand name just so I can be specific about the test, the Binax test, which is an antigen test as opposed to a polymerase chain reaction or PCR test. Or the Binax test can be done very quickly and provide a very quick result, matter of hours. Um, and there are tests now that can be done at home that can be done in a matter of minutes, tens of minutes, but minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, and those tests have a lot of limitations. Uh, and knowing the best way to use them is in fact uh, a challenge. So the Binax test was not proved for the way, for example, that the um, university system in Wisconsin is using the test. Uh, they're doing mass testing um, and they're testing, at least they were, asymptomatic people. Anybody that walks up, I wanna be tested. What's your reason? Well, it's, it's Thursday and I'm, I wanna be tested on Thursdays. Okay, here, here's a test. And you're gonna get uh, a fair number of false positives by doing that. Mm -hmm. And if you test in an area where somebody just got infected six hours ago, you're going to get false negatives. But if you then do the more expensive tests only on the people that come up positive, you can mass test large numbers of people at five bucks a pop. And then you do the test that costs 150 to $200, which somebody's paying for government, individual, insurance company, whatever. You only need to do 20 of those instead of 2,500. Hmm. So I think if we had taken a very aggressive, make testing widespread, free, no risk, encourage it, uh, we would have been able to target our efforts even as late as March and April in places where there were real problems. I'll give you one example. In, in uh, Hong Kong and in areas of China, when they, were, when they had a lockdown going on, okay, now we're going to test the sewage system for this six block area. Sewage system A, nobody in there is infected. The test is negative. Sewage system B, we've got some strongs positive. So now we're going to test the individual uh, buildings. So, you, you know, you've screened 10,000 people in a six block area. Boom. Nobody there has the disease. Um, and by then, doing a mass and literally sewage screening is one of the places that has been advocated and has been done because it allows you to show regional hotspots and then go in and, and do more aggressive testing. So there, there's things that could have been done. But now let me defend the government. I mean, even going to defend the Trump administration. Nobody's ever dealt with this before. And in something like this, everybody has very strong opinions often the strength of their opinion is inversely related to how much they know. <laughs> so the less you know, the stronger your opinion. It's life in general, yes. <laughs> right. Sure, yeah. sure. But, but, but that's the nature of what we're dealing with. And, and then it's not helped with, don't wear masks. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, you should wear a mask. Everybody wear a mask. So let me address that. Why did that happen? I'm one of those people in April of last year, I said, don't go out and buy a mask. It's not going to help you. Mm -hmm. And now I'm telling everybody to wear masks. Why did I change? Was I wrong before? No, I was trying to achieve a different, a different problem <clears throat> or answer a different problem. When masks are in limited supply, particularly the N95 or the high quality 3M and other company respirators, who do you want to protect? The healthcare workers. Yeah, your frontliners. Yeah. The frontliners, okay. <clears throat> and if we don't have enough to go around, I don't need people working the system so they can protect cousin Fred and Aunt Susie and their daughter at the expense of the health, when they have no real exposure, at the expense of the healthcare workers. I think so, all too often that got conflated with you know, don't worry about a mask. It's not going to be effective anyway, as opposed to don't buy a mask. We need them for other people. Well, yeah. and, and but you see, both of those statements are true. So let's talk. Let's take it out of the realm of COVID-19 for a minute. Greg, I'm giving you TB for the sake of argument. 
Well, hopefully just for the sake of argument. I'm not in a hurry to get that. Only for the sake of argument. If you walk into my building and you're a possible TB patient, you get a mask put on you right away. That mask protects me. Right. But if I wear a mask and you're not wearing one, I get maybe a 25% benefit if I'm lucky. My mask, when you're the one who's infected and spewing out TB, my mask offers very little protection. And so when we, the other part of that message is don't go out and wear a mask when everybody out there is coughing and sick because it doesn't protect you. That's a true statement. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if we got enough people wearing masks and we have more than enough to go around, even if there's an infected person out there who's not wearing a mask, if I've got 50 people who are getting 25% protection each from wearing a mask, I'm going to have fewer people getting secondary infections. So the utility of the mask depends in part on whether it's on the sick person or the well person. And even if it's on the well person when it should be on the sick sick person, poorly functioning efforts when done in mass are better than no effort at all. Yeah. Well, it's that proverbial R factor, right? The uh, the reinfection rate that you try to deal right. with. Um, with with COVID, it apparently is very high. The, the R factor says how many other people are likely to get infected when one person gets infected. And uh, just going back to high school limit quite, equations. That's not quite true. Oh, okay. That's not quite true. The well, R factor is higher than ordinary influenza, probably by a factor of two or three. But the R factor of ordinary influenza is about 1.2, maybe it's Mm -hmm. 1.5. The R factor of, which means for every infected person, he's going to infect one and a quarter persons. Right. As long as it's greater than one, the epidemic is going to grow somewhat. Yeah. The R factor for the uh, SARS virus, the, the predecessor to SARS-2, which is COVID, uh, was an R factor of about five. Wow. Uh, maybe 10, again, depending on what you read. The R factor for measles, 18. Wow, oh, I didn't realize that high. Wow. Yeah, what, what is it for COVID? more infectious. What is it for COVID at this well, point? Well, the answer to that is yes. Yes, it's greater than uh, one, we know we, that, yeah. It's greater right. than one. Um, it, it varies depending on the strain of the virus, and it varies also on some environmental conditions. Um, and it's hard to get a precise measurement on the fly, but I've seen estimates as high as four, and I've seen estimates as low as about 1.8. The current best guess that I've seen is between two and three. So it's 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 more infectious than uh, influenza, uh, but not a lot more infectious than influenza. Um, but the uh, one of the reasons we know that it's more infectious than influenza is in areas where um, COVID is still going on, we don't have a flu epidemic this year. Yeah, I was just going to mention that. Uh... I've been hearing that from a lot of friends and family. Nobody's getting sick with anything else. It's uh, because <laughs> but you of, can't get the right. office flu if no one's in the office. Exactly. You know. Well, that's part of it. But even before the lockdowns went into effect to the degree that they've been in effect, let me go to another country. The South Southern Hemisphere flu epidemic precedes ours by about six months. Hmm. Australia normally has about 250,000 cases of influenza every year. Last year, their total influenza count was about 20,000, a 90% reduction. Yeah. That's because they were busy masking up and social distancing. One of the reasons we didn't have a flu epidemic, number one, we're all wearing masks. Okay, that's giving too much credit to the masks. We also shut down travel so that sick travelers weren't coming in. Mm-hmm. That's number two. And also, uh, the epidemic wasn't that widespread where they were coming from. Mm. So for all of those reasons, we didn't have much of a flu epidemic. 
But it also, even though there is some flu in the country right now, it's not being transmitted at the same time that COVID is, which tells you that there is a relatively higher transmissibility of COVID as opposed to influenza. Mm, okay. Okay. Now, precision numbers, hey, I have no idea. So let's go back to the vaccines right now. So we, we were all starting talking about the vaccine distribution. Uh, it's imperfect, but there's some really good news on the horizon. Number one, uh, it was just announced this week that new studies have shown that the Pfizer vaccine does not have to be stored at the severely ultra cold temperatures that were required before. It doesn't need to be at minus 60 degrees. It can only be at it can be at only minus 30. So so that's still pretty cold, but that's the level of freeze that most pharmaceutical freezers are at. The ultra cold freezers are in very limited supply. There are four in La Crosse County. Um, one at the uh, county, two at the two medical centers, and one at one of the universities, and that's it. And the surrounding counties don't have any. Uh, whereas the pharmaceutical freezers are everywhere. You know, the local Walmart, not Walmart, Walgreens has a pharmaceutical grade freezer. Uh, so that means that the Pfizer vaccine as well as the Moderna vaccine uh, are easier to transport and easier to store while you're waiting to distribute them. And then the, uh, the new vaccine that was just approved today, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, is stored, I think, at refrigerator temperature or ordinary freezer temperature. Um, so, you know, that's going to make the logistics a lot better. And also, all of the the supply of all of the vaccines has been ramping up as rapidly as possible. Do you know what the limiting factor is for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine? No, it's I was trying to work that question in since mm -hmm. you, you kind of hinted at it a bit earlier. It's fat. It's what? I didn't hear that. <laughs> it, it, it's fat. It's fat. lipid. Oh. Lipid is a word. Oh. Li yeah. uh, fats are lipids, so mm -hmm. cholesterol is a lipid. But what's unique about these two vaccines, um, they're, they are messenger RNA. And, and if we have time, we can talk about what that stuff really is. But, but the bottom line is the messenger RNA is something that the body cells break down very quickly. We have enzymes to use that stuff up. Messenger RNA sends a message from the nucleus out to the protein manufacturing machinery of the cell. And as soon as the message gets there, it's chewed up because you don't want to have too strong a message that lasts too long. You want to make something and then stop making it. And one of the ways the cell stops making that protein, whatever it is, let's say it's albumin, which the liver cells make for the blood. You want to make just enough. So a signal goes out, okay, make a batch of albumin. Okay, the signal goes out, throw them, throw the message away. And the messenger RNA gets chewed up. So to make the messenger RNA get to the cells and to make the spike protein so our body will respond to the spike protein, they have to wrap it in a protective coating like saran wrap. That saran wrap is polyethylene glycol and other lipids, other fats. And for the Moderna vaccine, it is polysorbate. I think it's polysorbate 80, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. And it turns out, okay, we need more of that stuff. Well, there's companies that make it for food products and other products, but the level of quality of production that you have to have to be given a stamp of approval for an injection product is a whole different problem. And so there wasn't enough of it to go around. And that has been uh, one of the limitations, but that problem appears to have been solved and the volume of vaccine produced is, is ramping up very rapidly for both companies. The other thing is that uh, there's been a lot of press about how come the developing countries get all of it. So there's some political pressure to share some of the pr uh, production with other countries. And I don't know if it's having any effect on United States supply, uh, but I, I think it is a political issue. Well, speaking of political issues, I want to transition a little bit to one of the key political questions that's yet to be answered, which is when and how are we going to reopen schools? Parents are super eager to get kids back to work because they, or excuse me, kids back to school because they want to get back to work. 
even if you don't necessarily uh, plan on like leaving your home to go to work, just not having to do childcare all day is is a pretty huge element to being employable. And after a year of a lot of kids being at home, I'm sure parents everywhere need a bit of a break. Uh, there's also the element of social interaction and socialization with child's mental development and the role that schools play in that. Uh, as part of the reopening, teachers in many areas are demanding to be moved to a higher tier on the vaccine schedule so they can teach without risk or as much risk. Uh, the potential solution okay, there is so, get teachers so, vaccinated, so, but there's a lot of opposition so, on all sides of this. So how are you looking at this question? So, <laughs> I have a totally biased answer. Mm. Um, I am running a, a vaccine clinic next Friday evening. I am running the clinic next Friday evening for teachers. So that is a question that for Wisconsin has been decided at a political level way above my pay grade. Mm -hmm. So I don't, have, I don't have to worry about some of the politics of it. Um, and, and we can argue whether it's valid or not. I see a lot of benefit. Um, I'm going to answer the question two ways. One is to talk about the success of why this particular teacher clinic is taking place. The local school systems got together, formed a consortium, a collective, and agreed to work with the health department to allocate doses based on the size of the school system, the uh, demographics, if you will, age and other demographics of the teachers in the various school systems, and then approach to the state says, we're ready to go and distribute it fairly. So we're getting uh, our first doses this coming week, whereas the rest of the state is about two weeks behind in terms of about 20% of the vaccines in the state of Wisconsin being allocated, uh, allocated to teachers. So that was a political decision, um, which, which again, I don't have to weigh in on. Um, uh, but I like the way that we solved it locally, which is it's done in a team approach. It's done in a spearness of transparency and opening. My job, which I was doing yesterday morning, was teaching school nurses at our one of our vaccine clinics how to administer the vaccine. Actually, I say my job was supervising the clinic because the public health nurses from the city of La Crosse and county of La Crosse have been sharing, doing the burden, bearing the burden for weeks. <clears throat> that's, that's outside of the vaccinations that are going on at the hospitals, but the public health nurses are the ones that are actually training the school nurses, my job at the moment is trying to coordinate and make sure everybody gets trained in a timely fashion. I do have a, a question for you, Michael. Um, again, layperson question. It seems to me that even if children aren't at risk for developing severe symptoms, they can still get infected and spread that infection to others. Should we be concerned as schools reopen and kids are in classrooms again, that there may be uh, infections that then go across households and uh, put the parents at risk? Sure. The issue is, is how much and going into this, all we had were guesstimates. And it looks like, and again, my knowledge is not exact or precise because I'm following a lot of literature, but I'm not an infectious disease doc. You remember at the beginning, I said I'm a dermatologist, <clears throat> but because of my military background, I have an interest in infectious disease and public health and disaster planning, et cetera. But it appears that infants and preschoolers and young, you know, elementary grade kids don't seem to communicate it as effectively or as much as older adolescents. So the, the high risk group may be the college students and the high school students. And, and I, I wanna emphasize the word maybe because I think that this data is still being collected and it's kind of difficult to collect on the fly. Um, but yeah, you're asking the question, could it be the case that the, you know, doing this, particularly if the teachers are not vaccinated, poses a risk for transmission within the family transmission to friends, transmission to the teachers. And the question is, absolutely it does. There's no question. Um, 
Now I'm going to throw you a real big curveball. What does the vaccination accomplish? I'm going to ask you, Greg and Dan, what does the vaccination accomplish? You mean teachers as far as teachers? No, if I vaccinate you, what does it accomplish? Well, I mean, presumably there's a a, a 90 percent, 90 plus percent chance that I will not get the infection, right? Wrong. Oh, okay. Absolutely it's develop wrong. symptoms, correct? You you would still technically ninety percent probability you will not get sick, you will not wind up in the hospital, you won't die. Okay. Okay. So But I can so still I spread it. Vaccine, then, huh? and, oh, well, on. let's talk about that. If I give you a vaccine and we inject a needle in your arm, and oh by the way, these vaccines are wonderful because you can hardly feel them. Yeah, you, you do feel them. I won't say you don't feel them at all. But I literally had people yesterday said, Are you gonna do it yet? Well, we just did. So some people don't even, it's a really small needle in a really small amount. And, you know, it, it, it's a trivial vaccination. Mm-hmm. But we, we teach your body to recognize the virus where? Inside the body, mm-hmm. in the bloodstream, right. in the tissues. That's not where the body is when it first enters. It's in your secretions. It's in the nose. It's in the saliva. It's in the fluid that lines the lungs. The antibodies that are made include IgA antibodies, uh, which are secreted antibodies into your saliva, into your secretions in the lung, into the snot in the nose, and they reduce the amount of the virus. And the virus basically makes a landing on the beach, but doesn't come any further ashore, mm-hmm. doesn't come in and seize the next town. So the issue is, could you be infected carry the virus and be transmissible at some low level. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. In fact, probably. But you're probably not as infectious as long. You're probably not as infectious. Um, But it's a mistake to say that you're not going to get infected because you will. Well, we talked about the R factor. We talked about the R factor earlier. I mean, isn't that how you ultimately defeat uh, contagious disease by bringing that R factor down? it doesn't no, you don't never bring the R factor. Well, the R factor should be thought of as a property of the virus. Right. What you do is when you have enough people that are sick and enough people that are vaccinated together, you reduce the number of targets. Mm-hmm. So any given person that is effect. So you can think of it as the effective R factor as opposed to the intrinsic R factor. Right. So right. the intrinsic R factor or the base reproduction rate if somebody comes in with a new disease, they just got infected in the lab that something that wasn't supposed to leave the lab and they go out and they go to an American Legion convention, how many people are they going to infect? That's the R0. Mm-hmm. The effect of R factor is, okay, today at boot camp, when half of the people have already been infected and a quarter of what's remaining have been vaccinated, what's the likelihood then that a person who's infected is going to infect somebody else? And so the R, you can think of as the R factor changing, but I don't like to look at it that way because I think the R factor is really a property of the virus. Yeah, what you yeah. should think of it is what's the susceptibility of this population. Yeah. And the combination of vaccine and people surviving from the illness means that you have a less susceptible population. Yeah. I guess that's what I was getting at because, I mean, if, if you have um, – if, if the effective, not the intrinsic, but the effective R factor – becomes less than one, um, you know, just going back to, you know, high school algebra, right. limit equations, you know, it, it'll eventually diminish. It dies out. And there's two ways, right. there's actually three ways of doing it. One is vaccination. Another one is to get infected and have an immunity. And a third one, unfortunately, is to basically die from it, uh, which right. takes you out of the, out right. of the uh, pool. So, uh, right. so yeah, so the, the effect of, I guess, our factor, I, I guess, well, I'm trying to, I guess, modify my question that you asked me earlier, but I'm trying to <laughs> trying to figure out, you know, it, from a mathematical perspective, I guess you're you're basically uh, vaccinating a single person isn't isn't so important from the big picture. If a single person gets vaccinated, what's important from the big picture is that enough people get vaccinated that the virus has nowhere to go. Is that right. is that a Kind of a good yeah, answer. basically. I mean, that, yeah. that's a pretty good analogy. <clears throat> um, the 
the part that I worry about, I don't know if I want to say this on the radio or not, but, but it's honest, is if we've got enough people vaccinated with vaccine A and a new COVID variant comes along, um, that vaccine A doesn't work again, what that against what that means is that the only virus that will be effectively transmitted is the new virus, which is mm-hmm. more transmissible or more dangerous. Um, you know, those are those are the things that we worry about. Um, and so, I, I would like to make a couple of observations. One is that yeah, we've done a lot of things wrong. We've also done a lot of things right. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time in history where a vaccine was deployed against a newer disease when that first major wave across the planet of that disease was still underway. So we're going to see for the first time if we can deploy a vaccine in such a way that it will hasten the end of that particular wave. That's never been demonstrated before. And so that'll be really significant information. And maybe maybe it's going to show there's real value to do these quick vaccine developments and deploy them as fast as possible. We should also acknowledge it's also possible that guys, it really didn't make that much difference. Mm-hmm. It's also possible that deploying a vaccine too quickly means that you hasten the mutation frequency in the virus in question. And that has to do with RNA viruses versus DNA viruses and a variety of other things. Um, and, you know, that's, that's really bizarre. The other, other aspect of this, which has had very little press, is the uh, vaccine has been shown to get into gorillas in zoos. Mm-hmm. It has been shown to get into minks. It has been shown to get into other um, animal systems as well. So a zoonosis like Ebola and Zika and um, COVID is something that jumps from animals to people. And anthropognosis is one that starts in people and jumps to other animals. Mm. And we're seeing evidence that that may be happening as well. And nobody knows what to make of that. Wow. What are the potential consequences if that is a, a common characteristic of the virus? Well, one characteristic is that it will mimic what happens with influenza, which is it will move to another uh, animal population like pigs or birds, mutate in pigs and birds, and then come back with a vengeance next year with a new form. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah, it, it probably yeah. it probably mutates in many different ways, but only the ones that survive the transition uh, are the bad ones. Because if they aren't bad, well, they, they don't survive. No, that's not true. They're, they're just, if they're not, it's not if they aren't bad. There's actually a pressure that the ones that survive are the ones that are less bad. So right, let me right, take yeah. syphilis yeah, as an example. Mm-hmm. Syphilis, when it first appeared in the old world in Europe in the 1500s, if you got syphilis, you were dead in two years. Mm-hmm. It was a very aggressive disease. Um at the time of the Tuskegee experiment, as terrible as that experiment is, it also showed that at that time, only 25% of people with primary syphilis would progress to advanced tertiary syphilis or neurosyphilis. We think, nobody's doing another Tuskegee experiment, but we think now the frequency of that has gone down even further. I, you know, I'm an old doctor. I'm going to be 70 this year. I've seen lots of cases of syphilis when I was younger uh, and when I was in the military and when I was at Harvard. Um, and recently I had uh, took care of a patient with syphilis and I was the only one around that recognized it because nobody else had seen it. Hmm. Um, so it, it isn't that it isn't we have, have mutated and developed resistance. It's that syphilis has adapted to cause less severe disease in people. So in general, the viruses uh, and, and bacteria, uh, and I suspect even fungi, uh, adapt or, or change or evolve so that they can be in a commensal or mm. neutral relationship with the host 
so we don't kill them because oh, if you kill yeah. the host too quickly if you kill the host too quickly it, it doesn't propagate i never thought about that that's a good point hmm. so it becomes it becomes more benign over time because that's the only way it can survive if if, if it doesn't kill the host right hmm. man All right, i'm uh, learning a lot like here to... Uh, kind of move us into a wrap-up phase here. Sure. Bringing in everything together that, for what we've talked about. The next time this happens, because it's not going to be 100 years, it's probably going to become pretty quickly, I think, is the, the common expectation now. And I mean, whenever it comes, we would definitely want to be ready. What do you want to see the government do between now and then? And what can citizens do right now to both uh, help recover from the current pandemic, you know, are there things they can volunteer or donate to, and also prepare for the future? I think the, the first thing that I would say is that uh, all of our honest politicians, starting with the Alliance Party, should say, look, the vaccine is not perfect, but it's the best defense we have. Uh, this whole lockdown thing is hurting our economy, hurting our citizens, <clears throat> hurting uh, a lot of businesses, and we need to open back up because maybe we're doing more damage than we are good. But the best way to do that is for everybody to go get vaccinated. Um, because I, I'm, I've given up on convincing people to mask up because that obviously has not worked well. Uh, now, the next thing that, what would I want the government to do? I would want the government to um, do more of the tabletop exercises like Dan alluded to and more refining the cooperation between the states and the uh, federal government and the local county agencies, et cetera. So all of those things worked better. The other thing, and this is going to be a political hot potato, <clears throat> I'm going to say, okay, let's be also be more honest. So let's suppose we didn't mask up and we didn't have a vaccine and we didn't have a lockdown. Um, and we actually did nothing but let the vaccine, the, the illness run its course. At the worst, in Italy, in, in, in Iran, a few other countries, when the vaccine was just raging like fire, about 10% of people were dying. Now, there's a, a much higher number that were significantly ill with a lot of residual morbidity, suffering afterwards. Mm -hmm. But if we had done nothing at all, A, the the pandemic would be mostly over by now and the total death rate would have been no worse than about 10 percent of the population which means 90 percent of the population would still be here and we'd be through this thing mm -hmm. so it it is a legitimate argument it's not one that i make i want to be clear but it's a legitimate argument to say that my grandchildren might have been better off if we just let all the old people like me die off and the people that uh, survived or more hardy, and we can adapt to the virus a little faster. <clears throat> From an evolutionary standpoint and a population standpoint, that is a legitimate argument to make. It's not one that I advocate because I don't. I'm not volunteering to be one of the people that dies. Yeah, yeah that's, that's all well and good on paper, but when it's your grandparent, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. That changes. And, and so, so in a perfect world, what I would want is a better way. And then, so that's leading on what I want the government to do is target the most susceptible population more effectively. So I want a temporary purple stamp on the forehead of everybody that's going to either get really sick or die from the disease, VM, vaccinate me, and I'll forget about everybody else. Hmm. We're not able to identify that yet because identifying that is a little more cold-hearted than people were able to be and a little more practical than people were, were able to be. But I would argue that our current vaccination efforts with the priority groups that we have are an effort to do that as benignly, accurately, and fairly as we can. Mm -hmm. It's going to be very imperfect. There's going to be political considerations that are into it, which I wish were not there. But we're trying to target the vaccine so we reduce the number of people dying who really didn't have to die. Well, if I may just give you a counter, a counter argument to that, there are an infinite number of variations of diseases out there, of different uh, um, viral constructs. 
So building hardiness toward one strain of a, of a virus or perhaps a, a whole family of viruses, uh, you know, nature will throw more at you then. So I, I, I sort of have to argue with that because it, 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 uh, it isn't like you can build up a tolerance to any possible virus out there. There are just an infinite number of possibilities, I would think. No, and in fact, as Greg pointed out earlier, we're going to see more of this. Mm-hmm. because we are encroaching on animal habitats. Uh, the very nature of our interconnected society in, in concentration more and more in cities means that we're going to be more susceptible to these kinds of outbreaks. And I think the reality is that those are going to continue and be more frequent mm-hmm. uh, as population increases, as more disruption in speciation, species takes place, more extinctions and everything else. We're going to see more of that in the future. And so the argument is, uh, you know, we can't defend against that perfectly. We can't be hardy against one virus. You're right. We need a system which is able to respond to whatever the next one is, Mm -hmm. whether it's a virus or a strain of malaria that's resistant to all of our antibiotics as as just making one up, another example. So we need systems that work and the reality is we're either going to make them work well, in which case our society will survive and recover quickly like China did mm-hmm. and Taiwan did and New Zealand is doing, or we will fail to do that effectively and suffer the consequences over a longer period of time as we're seeing in the United States. Uh, I'm not advocating a totalitarian approach either I'm just being frank that our very freedoms that we prize make us less effective at putting some of these measures in place. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, I, and I, yeah. I think the, the, the approach there is more communication, more education, uh, less mixed signals from government about steps to take at the end of the day if you want to preserve people's freedoms, but have them adopt these steps and take these measures, you got to convince them it's a good idea. And I don't think we did a very exactly. good job of that. Mm-hmm. I think we did, we did a terrible job. And we, we could go on for another hour about social media and the internet and all the other reasons there's misinformation out there. But that, that's a topic for another day. So I, you know, we went fairly far afield. I hope this is actually interesting to people. The reality is that I think if I would closing comments, it would be that the public health professionals at every level, state level, county level, city level, national level, when politics didn't get in the way, on both sides of this equation, when politics didn't get in the way, were doing their damnedest to do their job. This is something they've been preparing for for a long time. There's a T-shirt one of my nurses had uh, today that I really like, educated, dedicated, vaccinated, um, uh, prepared, something similar to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the one caffeinated and dedicated. Yep. That's us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but I got to tell you, those nurses are working their butts off and, and I'm always singing the praises of nurses. My daughter's a nurse who takes care of COVID patients. Um, and, uh, all of my colleagues have taken care of COVID patients. And it's a losing battle more often than it should be. Um, But our medical system has responded imperfectly, but a lot better than than people actually were expecting at one point. And the last question for the two of you, where did the 1918 flu epidemic first appear? Ooh, ooh, I know that one. Kansas. Kansas, that's right. Kentucky. Darn. Oh, well, it began <laughs> with a K. I knew it was a K. <laughs> it, it was actually the first report. We think the first reported cases were in Haskell County, Kansas, and World War I doughboys went to Camp Funston, also in Kansas. Um, and that's where the first sort of big outbreak was. Uh, and then we took it to Europe. We gave it to Europe. Yeah, it became so, the Spanish flu. This, we blame the became, Spanish on yeah, it. Yeah, why was it called the Spanish flu? Do you know the answer to that? No, why was that? Because they didn't have censorship. They were the only country in Europe that didn't have censorship, so nobody else was reporting it, and the Spanish were, 
and people thought it originated there. <laughs> My gosh. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know that. So, guys. I'm going to give a shout-out to we all of the, uh, the nurses in my family before we get out of here. <laughs> yeah, please do. Please uh, just do. Uh, give it, give some credit to the, the frontline workers in my family. I've, I've got quite a few. Jesse and Amy in particular are working. Uh, they are working COVID wings in their respective cities. So that That's heart-wrenching work. And I... they have been for... Yeah. This entire year, that's it's just been a mess with them. I I, th I think there's going to be some long-term, almost PTSD type of uh, results coming out of this, don't you think? I mean, this is this is really yeah uh, hard work, and it's heart wrenching, and it's emotionally draining. I I I hats off to everyone that goes through that, but my goodness, uh, it's it's tough. I it's really yeah. One tough. of them even it contracted really the virus through treating other people. It was uh. Like a PPE error, and she caught it just that quick, you know. Wow. Wow. Hope she's okay. But she's she's fully recovered, so good okay. news on that front. Okay. But it was so so scary, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Well, guys, anything else I can contribute to this interesting discussion today? Well, I think we've pretty much uh, should wrap it up at this point. Um, Agreed. Yeah. Why don't you go ahead and do the outro there, Greg? Well, Michael, thank you for your time. We've been talking with the Wisconsin State Chair for the Alliance Party, Dr. Michael White, and the Missouri State Chair for the Alliance Party, Dan Schaefer, my vaunted co-host and producer. Thank right. you, everyone, for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party perspective. You can subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. If you enjoyed listening to the show and like to get involved with the Alliance Party, please check out the website, www.theallianceparty.com. As we expand the party, we need your involvement. Democracy is not a spectator sport. Donations, volunteers, ideas, and opinions are always welcome. If you'd like to contact us at Alliance Party After Dark, send us an email at podcast at theallianceparty.com. And also check out our Twitter page, at Alliance On Air. All content for this podcast is copyrighted the Alliance Party. However, the views expressed in the show do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. I'm Greg, your host for this evening's edition of Alliance Party After Dark. And on behalf of everyone here at the Alliance Party and the show, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead. We hope to hear you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware. Please take care of yourself, your families, and those around you. Have a good night.